Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries. My name is Justin Douglas. So thankful you could join me today on this episode of Beyond Boundaries. If you want to learn more about me or find the show notes for this episode, you can go to pastorjustindouglas.com. You can interact there with feedback, comments, and questions, or you can reach out via Instagram at pastorjustindouglas. Also, please consider subscribing, rating, reviewing, sharing. It really does make a difference. On this episode of Beyond Boundaries, I am joined by George Heidechuk. George and I discuss the war in Ukraine, Ukrainian culture and history, and George provides a ton of context for what we are seeing daily in the news and in our social media feeds. I feel like I learned a ton about Ukraine talking to George, and I hope this information helps you understand the Ukrainian people and the war a little better. Let's get into it. Here it is, my conversation with George Hyduchuk. All right, welcome to Beyond Boundaries. I have George Hyduchuk with me. Uh, George, you are a doctor and a lawyer, right? Is this correct? Yeah, that is absolutely <laughs> correct. Yeah. And and so, I know uh, you I know you better as my friend Alex's dad, which is kind of <laughs> cool. So uh talk yeah. talk a little bit about your background and um yeah, share a little bit about what you do, who you are, uh, as we kind of get into this conversation about Ukraine. I'm really excited to hear you share some drop some wisdom on me and understand. All right, all right. So I uh, just a, a, as a qualifier, I'm not a historian. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when it comes to asking history questions, I, I'm okay with the history of Ukraine. Uh, I mean, I was born here in the United States. My mom and dad were born in uh, in uh, in Ukraine, um, 1920, 1923. Mm. So they lived through a lot. Um, uh, we could get into that a little more yeah. as we go. Um, but uh, so I was brought up here. In the in the U.S., uh, even though you know English is my second language technically because mm-hmm. everybody spoke Ukrainian in the house. Um, although I did learn well, most of my English before I went to uh, kindergarten you know, from my older brother and sister. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, I rarely ever spoke to my parents in English and I rarely ever spoke to my in-laws in English wow. to this day. So um, yeah, so it's always been Ukrainian and growing up Ukrainian in the, in the Ukrainian culture. Um, with you know Ukrainian um, scouting uh, organizations uh, as well as church organizations, um, so you know post World War II, uh, as in most uh, Eastern uh, cities in the U.S., there was a large immigration from Ukraine, post World War II immigration uh, of people that were displaced from from Ukraine by the Nazis um, and fleeing the Soviets as well. Uh, so they all settled around the church, basically, in every city. So mm-hmm. in the 50s, in the 60s, the typical communities were, you know, you have a Ukrainian church surrounded by a Ukrainian community. You have the German church surrounded by a German community. And right next to that is the Polish church surrounded by the Polish community and so on and so forth. So uh, and then all the organizations maintaining the cultures and so on. So I was brought up there, you know. My, uh, my, my school experience was with Americans, quote unquote, we always call <laughs> not Ukrainians, Americans growing up. Uh, and, uh, and, and we do, you know, and we interacted because of, you know, churches and organizations um, with all our Ukrainian friends. So we always had our Ukrainian friends and our American friends, mainly from school or the neighborhoods. 
Uh, so, but I went to school here, got my PhD, you know, got my uh, degree in biology, uh, PhD, and then I did a postdoctoral fellow and uh, in University of Iowa. And then eventually we came back to Buffalo. And at some point I was a faculty here, full-time faculty at the, at the uh, University of Buffalo Medical School in physiology and biophysics, which is what my PhD is in. And then, uh, then went totally rogue one day and decided to go to law school. <laughs> and and, and got a law degree while the kids were little, dropping them off at daycare and all that. And, uh, and then kind of moving forward. And one day I found myself in a law firm after I graduated uh, from law school. I still maintain my, my appointment there while I was in law school and taught the medical students and, and all that. My research activities went down, of course. Um, and, uh, and then ended up, uh, with the law firm here in, in, uh, in, in Buffalo, uh, Phillips Lytle, that, uh, is also has offices in New York and Washington, DC, and a little bit in Canada. Um, and, uh, and so I do pharmaceutical litigation and FDA regulatory work, uh, medical devices, pharmaceuticals, and so on. So, um, wow. that's kind of my general background there. That's amazing that you, you, I mean, the work it takes to become a doctor and you were like, I didn't go to school enough. I think I need to go some more. Like, <laughs> and you didn't choose like something easy. You were like, how about law? How about law school? Why, why not? How about that? You know, <laughs> that's yeah, pretty awesome. Random. Yeah, That's really yeah. cool. I mean, it was, it, it turned out, uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was a crazy thing because in the early nineties, um, uh, you know, I'll just give you a quick personal story of how I got to the whole law school thing is uh, in, in the early 90s, you know, I was a you know, postdoc or, or new faculty here at the university at, at Buffalo. And, uh, you know, I was doing uh, grant reviews for NIH as my, you know, scientific community service thing going down to Washington and reviewing grants and started getting into, you know, this, this thing for intellectual property and you know, patenting and things. And that came up because at the time uh, there were, you know, people were starting to talk about, you know, can you patent biological entities and can you patent genes? Uh, and so that, that became a big issue. And in and, and reviewing grants, things started coming up more and more, started thinking about it, reading about it, but a lot of back burner stuff while I was doing my real job. Uh, in research and things. Um, and then, uh, you know, one day we were talking with my wife and it's like, you know, you're really kind of getting into us. You should become a patent attorney. I'm like, nah, <laughs> I don't know anything about law. You know, all I know is uh, how, you know, I've seen the, the uh, animated video of how a, <laughs> how a, a law, you know, a uh, legislation becomes yeah. law or something like yeah. that. <laughs> I remember yeah. that the little, <laughs> the little PBS uh, like uh, role of like a, a bill tells you how to, how a law becomes. Yeah. yeah like, how a bill becomes a law. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I knew that there were three branches of government and that was pretty much it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I started thinking about it more and more over the, over the next few years. And so and then at one point I injured my knee, um, doing some martial arts and I was laid up for a while and, uh, I was like, uh, okay, <laughs> let's apply. That's <laughs> let's awesome. take the LSAT. What's this thing all about? That's amazing. But, uh, That's so cool. Yeah. So we, yeah, so we did that and, uh, and, and it turned out 
you know, about patenting genes and this whole, you know, um, getting to the, you know, uh, sequencing the DNA uh, of the human genome. It turned out that the major, um, major proponent of that thrusting, you know, the research was a former biochemistry, my former biochemistry professor, Craig Venter. Oh, so wow. he ended up being the head of, you know, the head of that effort from the private sector. And then you have Francis Collins and, and, and I, National Institutes of Health being the, uh, you, know, you know, the drivers from the government side. Yeah. Uh, and he, and he won. <laughs> so, that's amazing. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, and that's still a very relevant conversation. Like, like um, intellectual well, property is still a super relevant conversation, especially in the tech world. And so, I mean, well, obviously in medicine too, I would assume with everybody creating different vaccines slash medicines, you know, I'm sure um, patent laws and like all, all that kind of stuff is still has only become more relevant as things have expanded. So I'm sure your work is pretty necessary in the world. Right. That, that, and then also on a global scale, because we have, you know, patent issues between countries and oh, yeah. we hear about China stealing intellectual property and, and all that. So, yeah, so this is a big global issue and not just, you know, what, you know, medical device and pharmaceuticals and, and yeah. you know, the other technologies. Uh, in life sciences and so on, but uh, but that, that's we're cool. starting to actually go down a different line. <laughs> that's all right. Lane. No, that's all right. That's it's cool to get to know a little bit of your background and and you know uh, a little bit of what you what you do. Now, um, tell me a little bit about your parents. You said your parents um, came here. How old were they when they came here? Yeah. So uh, so uh, they were they actually immigrated to the U.S. in 1950. So okay. they're basically. You know, 1920, they were born 1950, so they're, you know, 30 years old, yeah. uh, approximately. Um, but the, uh, the the route that they took was, you know, quite unusual, but not quite unusual for the times, because um, both my parents, they were in different villages, um, just outside of Yviv, which is uh, the major city in Western Ukraine that you hear about now. Okay, um, yeah. That's, you know, closer to the Polish border. Um, and so during World War II, when the Nazis came through Poland and eventually came across the border into Ukraine, those were the first, you know, villages. That was the first area area in Western Ukraine that was being taken over by, you know, by the Nazis. Mm -hmm. And what they typically did was go into villages, um, you know, of course, depending on the resistance, they didn't deal with resistance very well. Um, and they kind of took care of that, you know, those things. And, you know, the way my father always uh, described it, you know, they would come in, you know, they would end up hanging a few people on trees uh, that were resistors. And then they would line up everybody in a village and essentially for the working, the people that were able to work. So you're talking about, you know, the 16 year olds and above essentially they gave them the option you can join your compatriots on the trees or you could get on a train and go to work in at a labor camp in germany and because you know the germans really needed all their uh you know nationals to be either on the front lines or you know part of the you know the Volksdeutsch part of the you know german war effort you know they needed laborers and so what the Nazis would do is come in and wherever they would conquer, they would take people back, put them in forced labor camps and have them, you know, drive the war machine from that aspect. You know, my parent, my dad was worked in the train station in, in a labor camp. 
My wow. mom was a nurse, nurse's aide. And that's how they actually met after a bombing in, uh, in Hanover uh, during the war when the Allied forces were bombing. My dad was walking around um, just outside of a factory that got bombed and he got so concussed, he had no idea where he was. You know, he had some shrapnel, you know, some cuts and bruises. He was okay. Um, eventually, a friend of his found him just kind of wandering around dazed and confused and then took him to the hospital. Uh, there he was in a, in a bed next to one of his other friends that was also injured in the bombing. And um, so they were just kind of convalescing and being taken care of at the hospital. And my dad's friend that was in the next bed had some visitors and it was my, his friend's you know, girlfriend that would come and visit. And she one time brought along my future mom. Wow. Uh, and that's how they met uh, there. And then they ended up being, you know, making it through the war. Um, and these weren't, these weren't the, you know, like the Jewish extermination camps, but these were the labor camps. Yeah. Um, so was and, that in uh, Germany? Just for clarity, was that? Well, that in was Germany? in Germany, in, in Hanover. Yeah. And there were a number gotcha. of places. Once the, um, you know, the Allied forces, U.S. and Allied forces came in and liberated Germany, then, you know, for the next five years, basically, for most people, they, you know, where does everybody go yeah. now that liberated? People have been displaced from all different countries. It's not just Ukraine, but many, uh, many that did come from, you know, Ukraine. And at that time, you know, Stalin had the deal of, you know, we want our people back you know, to be part of the USSR again, we want them back. Um, and, you know, my parents were like, no way, they were already married uh, at that point. Uh, and, uh, and they decided now we'll immigrate somewhere else, we're not going back, because unfortunately, the thousands of people that ended up going back to, you know, the Soviet Union were either executed on the spot for being collaborators with the, with the Germans, or essentially shipped off to Siberia, where they put on trains, minimal tools, dropped off in the middle of nowhere, and say, this is your town, go live. Uh, and if you can survive and build a, a place to stay and live, you know, you're on your own. And many people died there. So wow. this was, you know, in addition to any gulags where, you know, more political prisoners were being sent and so on. Uh, so my parents, you know, stayed and they uh, were left in Germany in displaced persons camp until uh, they had the opportunity to immigrate. You know, they needed a sponsor um, back then. And so one of my dad's friends um, was able to get uh, a sponsor to go to Australia. And then they actually sponsored my, my mom and dad to go to Australia, to immigrate to Australia. Well, they were all set to go in, in a week to get on a ship, you know, go up to the port city and, and go and, and, and immigrate to Australia. But my dad was helping another friend put in doing some masonry work on a stove or that, and he got a little chip of brick in his eye. He had to go to the infirmary. They put a patch on his eye and then they basically said after that, the immigration people said, you can't immigrate, you have an injury get back oh. in line, find somebody else. So, so, you know, fast forward, they were able to get another friend that was able to sponsor them to go come to the United States. And that's how my 
family ended up in the United States and I don't speak with an Australian accent. <laughs> I was going to say you're, you're this close to being Australian. Yeah, That's yeah, pretty hilarious. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So um, for those of us who don't know history very well, you mentioned the Soviet Union at that point, wow. then you, Ukraine, Ukraine's not really liberated in any way, even though World War II is over. They're liberated in the sense that, look, I don't have to be in a labor camp anymore. But to go home is incredibly risky. Um, and politically speaking, there's no independence um, because you're, you're kind of part of this greater union, the Soviet Union. Now, how long did the Soviet Union last and how long was it like that for refugees coming back? Uh, till, okay. Or, or yeah, give me a little so, bit of a history. Give me a little bit of a so, history if you want to answer it differently than that or if you want to share a broader yeah, yeah. So we could, we, could, we could go back. I mean, we could go back a long time. But um, over the years, like by around in the 1700s, I mean, we could, we could go back 30,000 wow. years, <laughs> Okay, yeah. <laughs> which is a separate story, which is, will actually be interesting if we, when we get there again, yeah. but, uh, but uh, just to kind of bring it kind of to, to tail on, you know, the conversation that we're, we've started, um, Ukraine has been kind of struggling for independence on and off for basically centuries. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, you know, you learn in probably in high school that, Ukraine was a breadbasket of the Soviet Union, and so it was very uh, agrarian, agricultural, grain, wheat, corn, barley, all, all and, that. And it still is. That. It still is today, correct? I, I oh, understand. I understand that that's actually a big issue that is being talked about right now is like that they supply, I want to say Egypt with a good amount of grain and wheat and I don't know, some other stuff. So like that, that I just heard oh, that, yeah. that yeah. that's going to be a big issue potentially even <laughs> how it's going yeah. to affect other countries, but yeah. 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 Cause you're talking about, yeah, I mean, you're talking about Ukraine is essentially the size of Texas that they always say. And, but it's the, you know, just a couple of quick stats. It's the number one, um, you know, in, number one in Europe, as far as the size of agricultural land. Mm -hmm. And so it's number one in the world for exporting sunflower oil, number two in the world in terms of barley production, number three in the world in terms of, you know, black earth, uh, agricultural, um, you know, um, you know, basis there and, and, you know, potato production, it's number four in the world, number four in maize production, mm. rye production, number five, I mean, you could go on and on wheat production, number eight in the world, egg production. So there's a lot, but you know, what, what many people don't realize is the mining industry, uh, is, is pretty rich as well because it's number one in Europe when it comes to uranium deposits. Uh, number two for titanium, you know, and then we could go through, it's either two, three or whatever for iron, magnesium, natural gas deposits, um, uh, you know, aside from Russia, which is large, but that's largely untapped. So there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of natural resources and not only that, but also, uh, you know, manufacturing uh, industry. It's very big in ammonia and other chemicals and, you know, it has huge gas pipelines going through um, the country that's supplying the rest of Europe. I mean, a lot of it comes through through Russia, from Russia, through through Ukraine and out into a network that goes out to all the other countries, um, you know, in Europe. So, wow. you know, as far, as far as resources, there's a lot more than you realize. And now, uh, as, just as you said, Justin, it was, it's, uh, you know, it's a big deal now because corn, 
prices have skyrocketed since uh, you know since the uh, you know the invasion and in, in this war, and it's been going up even before because of the 2014 war. Uh, so it's uh, you know it has you know Ukraine has a lot to offer from that aspect, but also these things you know impact and have a large ripple effect. Yeah, uh, as far as applying to Europe, but like you said, Egypt and many other you know exports you know to other countries. Yeah, so uh, so so, but, so they've they've always been agricultural, though, is what you're saying, even back right. in the in the past. So so the Soviet Union mm-hmm. used them largely or saw them largely as a supplier of agriculture for the union then. And then right. so that's kind of what they were known for in that during that season. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh and so I mean Ukraine was you know, so it's always being conquered by somebody, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it for resources and a lot of it just because. I mean, our very nature is pretty tribal uh, mm. as far as, you know, worldwide. And, and you know, you, you want to be global. You want to be, you know, friendly with your neighbors. But it doesn't take long till somebody has a resource that you need. And next thing you know, you're invading and taking over uh, for, for those reasons or for other geopolitical reasons as well to, you know, solidify various, um, you know, connections and so on. So, you know, from the 1700s on, Ukraine has been on and off, um, you know, being overrun by Lithuanian, Poland, Ottoman Empire, Russian, Russia. And so Russia for a long time, through the 1800s, actually. And, and, and then um, where there was a little uh, you know, uprising called the uh, Russian Revolution in, uh, you know, around just after World War I, when Lenin was generating the masses and this Bolshevik re- revolution. Um, at the same time, Ukraine was declaring its independence. Uh, and so in 1918, Ukraine declared its independence, but it was very short-lived because by 1920, 21, Russia came back in again and, and took it over. And then it, it had, um, you know, it was controlled uh, and then, you know, through the Stalin era, obviously, because then shortly in the 20s, when Stalin started getting into uh, into power, um, he had his eyes on Ukraine for a number of reasons. Um, obviously, one is, again, for the resources and the supplies um, that uh, and food and supplies that, that Ukraine can provide the rest of the Soviet Union, uh, essentially, and uh, the USSR. And, and the uh, and in addition, he um, he had a thing against uh, Ukrainians because they you know he did not see them as as equal or even you know didn't have a need for existence and and the reason or a number of reasons but one of the reasons was that they were going into this collectivist you know approach uh, in society. And the Ukrainians were very realist, resistant to that. So he sent in his people and basically, you know, it was, it was the beginning of the forced starvation, uh, man-made famine. Mm. And the way that came about was that Stalin's people came in and they started taking the grain that was being made and they would ship it out, uh, out of Ukraine. But it was to the point where it didn't matter how much grain you were making, you were not left enough for yourself or for the people that were producing it. So in the cities, of course, they're the first ones that start, you know, feeling the, uh, you know, the depth of, 
uh, of the uh, you know the dire need of grain and foods and bread lines were you know you know just huge uh, if they could get them and then it just got worse and worse and worse until you had a whole nation being starved on purpose um, and to the extent that uh, you know the numbers range from 3.5 to about 7 million uh, people starved uh, during that uh, man-made famine and what we call that as the Holodomor, uh, which is a man-made starvation, man-made famine. Um, so that happened around 1932 to 1933. Um, wow. and, and, then what, and then the opportunity for Stalin that arose after that was, well, now that every people are you know, dead and gone, there are entire villages that were starved out and so he started bringing in, you know, the kind of the, the doctrine of Russification. So he brought in, you know, people from Russia to start populating and inhabiting, you know, those areas. Mm. So that they become ethnic Russians. They move into that area. They have, you know, there were whole villages that nobody was there. And you just bring people in from Russia and said, this is all yours and go for it. Um, and so is this, so is this why, is this why the country currently speaks Ukrainian and Russian? Would it, would it be yes, linked yeah, back to yeah. this moment? So okay. The, yeah. So this is part of, you know, the usual thing you could either, you could either breed, you know, the ethnicity or language out of you, or mm -hmm. you could kill them off and replace them with your own people. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, during the Soviet era, you know, Russian was the main language that's what was being taught in schools you know not everywhere people would still learn ukrainian um and so on but that wasn't the you know the official language and and part of the official education program it was all oh. it was all russian so so now you have this this um you know influx of people from from the east in in ukraine east part of ukraine from russia and so you have a much higher russian speaking uh you know population there and generally, if you look at, there's, a, you know, the major river going through Ukraine, north-south, uh, coming from Belarus all the way down to the Black Sea, is the Dnieper, I can't even say it in English, it's Dnipro in Ukrainian, okay. <laughs> what they call Dnipro um, in English, I'll say. Uh, and that's the main, main, main river uh, and the you know, largest river in Ukraine. And it's also a way to say, you know, east versus west. Part mm. of Ukraine, okay. you know, the east part that that starts getting into a little more, uh, you know, a higher population, greater population of Russian-speaking um, native, not necessarily all native native Russians, but because we've gone through a number of generations now, and so people are born and raised in Ukraine, um, but just speak more Russian. Uh, whereas in Western Ukraine, you have more Ukrainian-speaking. Uh, although, um, you know, a quick, a, a quick story of the difference in Russian and Ukrainian or even Ukrainian in Ukraine versus Ukrainian here after the war uh, is different because like when my parents came over, all the Ukrainians that came over and immigrated after the war uh, came to the United States and Canada, say, for instance, or through Western Europe, they to this day speak, you know, the older Ukrainian, you know, the pre-World War II Ukrainian. Okay. The post-World War II Ukrainian dialect started changing because of the you know Russification you know, issue that occurred. So now you're starting to get more mixing and so on. And so 
Um, when, you know, a lot of friends that immigrated after the fall of the Soviet Union when, in 1991, when Ukraine became independent, a number of people come over, you could tell right away, you know, that they're not, you know, you know, the, the old Ukrainian, they're more the new Ukrainian, they have slightly different accents, uh, slightly different cadence uh, to their to their speech pattern and, you know, words and then some mixing uh, with Ukrainian with a little, you know, with a little Russian here and there. Um, but it's, you know, it's still Ukrainian. It's just, you can distinguish it's almost like when you go down South versus a Northern, you know, yeah. a Northeast versus a Southern, you know, that, you know, that kind of draw, but now you're getting a little mix with, with, with Russian, uh, you know, on top of that. So there's a little bit of a twist there. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I used to live in Boston, so I get it. You know, the, yeah. the Boston accent <laughs> yeah. makes no sense, you know? So, okay. So in, you said, uh, you said, you know, in the 90s, we have independence, um, mm -hmm. you know, and whenever a country goes from oppression like that for so long to and especially like you said, rustification, where they're experiencing a shift in culture applied to them, whether they like it or not. In 1991, when they experience independence, it's not like they're kicking everybody out overnight, you know, like that they're, they're not going to immediately change cultures. Right. So I'm assuming there was a little bit of a process to even know what to do with that independence as far as like directionally, how, 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 tell me a little bit about the, the politics of freedom in that time, because I would guess in most cases when that happens, there's a lot of different people vying for power and a lot of different opinions that start to rise to the top. And you kind of have your own oppression of figuring out what ideas are going to work, right? Like that, that becomes the new struggle, if you will. The struggle was for independence, but now we have it. What do we do with it? Um, which direction do we go? Tell me a little bit about the 90s and maybe even the early 2000s as far as like how that was working out, what was happening. Yeah, yeah, you're, 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 you're absolutely right. Um, there was a big, you know, there was a big change, obviously, when, with the fall of the Soviet Union. I mean, you had Gorbachev that, that that you know allowed that with perestroika and the whole issue of of, of going more west, um, and and you know and that became hard you know more difficult uh, to maintain the Soviet Union, especially because of economics. You know, you have the Reagan era influence of of you know. Uh, you know, military might build up. And one of the policies was, you know, we'll build up our military, see if you can stay, stay with us, you know, keeping up with the Joneses. And when you have the entire Soviet, you know, regime building up their military, well, their economy was suffering because of that. And so you start having more and more internal strife. Um, and you get the politics and now you have the communism, you know, and, and now you're trying to get more close to the West, or at least Gorbachev was going, uh, becoming more friendly or had these kind of democratic ideals that were starting to, you know, to, 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 to percolate uh, and so on. And eventually, you know, um, you know, the Soviet Union broke apart and then there you have Boris Yeltsin comes in. So from the, you know, from the, from the Russian side now, it's the Russian Federa Federation and the other, you know, 13 republics are now independent. Ukraine is now an independent state in August, 1991. And miraculously it became democratic, right? So basically you took off your communist hat and you put on your, your democratic hat. Same people though, 
mm-hmm. were, were essentially in, in office. And now they, you know, from being good Communist Party apparatchiks to, um, you know, now we're going, you know, democratic. Um, but that wasn't, you know, it didn't happen overnight, just like nothing happens overnight. We like to compress our history, you know, by the decade or by the, uh, by the century or whatever. But, um, you know, so there was a lot of, you know, what to do. And every, it was kind of like a Wild West scenario where everybody's on their own. So corruption was rampant. Um, where, where are we going to get, you know, food supplies, energy, you know, how is the government going to be, uh, developed, you know, it's a presidential parliamentary government, um, you know, the way it's set up, but, uh, but, you know, who has influence, who was being influenced still from Moscow, um, because the ties didn't just kind of miraculously, you know, break and, you know, fly, be free. Um, you know, the, Moscow still had their fingers and, and talons, basically, and everything. And so you did, you know, have you know, a lot of backdoor, backroom dealings. Um, mm-hmm. and, and this is, uh, and it's still, you know, there's still issues to this day, not only in Ukraine, but, you know, in the other, you know, former Soviet Republic, you know, Kazakhstan, mm-hmm. you know, Belarus, especially. Um, and things, and it depends how close or how distant you become, or the country has become from, um, you know, control by Moscow. You know, are you a puppet? Um, and this is really an underlying theme now that's being generated, um, you know, in in Ukraine and the idea of democratization and more more you know interest and collaboration and wanting to be have interaction with the West. Okay, so now this is also becoming a threat. Um, but in the meantime, uh, Ukraine ended up being in 1991, you know, in, in August, one day it becomes the third largest nuclear power in the world because it, you know, with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, they, Ukraine had all the warheads still on their territory. Really? So. Yeah, yeah. So same with Kazakhstan, same with a lot, you know, so with the Soviet Union, when they had their, you know, their military might and all the nuclear weapons, you know, that was all throughout the Soviet Union, including all the, you know, all all the uh, captive states, so to speak. I guess, I guess Uh, geographically, geographically, it would make sense to have those closer to Europe, potentially, if that's like in the sense of like, like putting them in that spot seems to be more regionally like accessible. Uh, so yeah, oh wow, yeah. I didn't I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, did yeah. Ukraine yeah. have so, to give those back then? Is that like what? Like, was there a process well, for? Yeah, sorry, yes. go ahead. Maybe I'm cut. I'm cutting in early. Sorry, sorry. No, no, no. This is okay. This is okay. You're uh, you're you're following just uh, you know you're following the script here. So yeah, so so now you have you know so now you have a uh, you know a country that's essentially the you know the largest uh, you know the third largest nuclear power mm. and. And then, and, you know, and then there was this, uh, this agreement um, that uh, happened, uh, well, like 1994. Uh, so 1994, there was an agreement where, uh, you know, this was part of the, uh, um, uh, you know, nuclear disarmament plan for the world, right? So, so uh, the U.S., uh, Russia, um, uh, England, as well, they were all really pushing for Ukraine and any of the other nations, um, you know, outside of Russia that had nuclear weapons is to, um, you know, dismantle their nukes. 
And um, that ended up uh, occurring because of a 1994 agreement uh, between the countries that, that allowed uh, that Ukraine basically agreed to dismantle its, its uh, you know, nuclear weapons as long as, you know, the U.S., Russia, everybody helps, you know, you know, pays for it, helps pay for that because that's, you know, yeah. you just don't kind of throw them in a trash, put them out yeah. in, uh, you know, or bury them or something like that. Yeah. You have to take them apart and you have to make sure that the you know, uranium and everything gets, you know, gets processed appropriately and so on and so forth. But, uh, um, yeah. you know, you, you have this, you know, you have this agreement um, and uh, the other you know, the, the, the other request uh, by, uh, by, or in this agreement, there was also an assurance that if one of the other, uh, another country would come in and try to take over, invade, um, or rule over Ukraine, the parties to this agreement would come to Ukraine's defense. Oh, really? So, so now, yeah, so now this was, yeah, this was, you know, technically it was an assurance it wasn't actually a guarantee, which would imply military response, uh, and, it, and it wasn't a treaty. A treaty, if it was a treaty, treaties, you know, the U.S. cannot an, enter a treaty unless it's approved by Congress. Um, so it wasn't, you know, at that level. So, you know, um, to this day that, uh, you know, every time in 2014 when Putin uh, came in and invaded, you know, take, take, took over Crimea. Mm-hmm. Um, and and started to destabilize the uh, eastern provinces in Ukraine as well. I mean that was a violation of this agreement. Uh, same same as it is now. Uh, however, you know who came to the rescue? Did, 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 well, Russia was the one that was doing it. Well, Russia is not going to come to the rescue. What about the U.S.? Uh, the U.S. really you know didn't come to any military. Uh, rescue or, 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 or provide troops or anything, which which the Ukrainians were, you know, hoping that that would be just as it is now. They want a no-fly zone. They want, you know, NATO to come in and everything like that. Yeah. Um, this, this agreement from 94 w- only provided assurances. So, mm. uh, I mean, you know, the U.S., and this was when, you know, Obama was in, uh, you know, this is in 2014 now, when um, you know Russia invaded Crimea, um, then and started the war in southeast provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk, um, then uh, you know, we provided some military, you know, weaponry. Um, you know, we always hear about oh, you know, Obama provided blankets uh, and supplies and humanitarian relief and things like that. But um, you know, it was always kind of a bad taste in in a lot of Ukraine from the Ukrainian perspective that, um, you know, uh, considering that there was an agreement, um, nobody came to their defense. So, uh, so, so just so I understand, America and other countries made an agreement in 1994 that, hey, we're going to help you dismantle these weapons. Obviously, part of dismantling these weapons is that you aren't going to have the trump card of nuclear weapons response, right? Uh, which I think, right. to be honest, is the only reason a lot of people aren't more involved in this, this issue right now is because we know oh. Russia has nuclear weapons like that. That's that's the that's the hesitation to get involved here. Obviously, World War Three could start yeah. without nuclear weapons. But I guess what I'm saying is and, and and 
and the cost would be catastrophic, remove nuclear weapons off the board, and it would still be a catastrophic cost. But obviously, nuclear weapons is something that, it, let me put it this way, it gets put into the equation, right? When we're thinking about a no-fly zone, that seems to be what uh, um, maybe America's motivations are for not creating that or NATO's you know, motivations are. But what you're telling me is in 1994, 20 years prior to 2014, we had an agreement that, hey, we're going to we're going to, in essence, remove these defenses from you or at least these things that make people, you know, second guess whether or not they want to invade a place, you know. Um, and in doing that, we're in essence creating a handshake agreement that we got your back if something happens. And mm-hmm. a lot of Ukrainians would say Americans have failed at that handshake agreement. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because okay. it, it's actually, yeah, it's, you know, so it's, it's called a, it's a, it's a memorandum of understanding. So it's something like a memorandum of uh, secure, security, security assurances or something, but it's more known as the Budapest Agreement, 1994 Budapest Agreement. Okay. And so that's, uh, you know, that's where, you know, US, UK and Russia um, provided assurances to protect Ukraine's territorial integrity, essentially. Yeah. Um, and obviously, uh, Russia is so, one of the ones that made that agreement and they're going, going back on that quite obviously. So, yeah, what, yeah. what when we when we look back to 2014, um, what ended that? Like what made that come to an end? What was the agreement either between Ukraine and Russia or all the parties involved that allowed for that to that tension to stop? Or, or at least the for peace to, to, to kind of come, or did it? I guess that's what I was. Okay, ask. good. Yeah, the ending part is is the, uh, yeah. the, the operative <laughs> word, or, or did it? Yeah, it never really did because you know we essentially you know look at you know the nineteen or uh, the twenty fourteen invasion by Putin with you know taking over Crimea and destabilizing you know the they, they call them oblasts but they're basically like provinces or states mm-hmm. within Ukraine so yeah. you know you say Luhansk and, and Donetsk you know that's in the eastern eastern part of uh, of Ukraine and those border you know, so, Russia just so people who geographically those, don't understand those border Russia so it wasn't very hard for them to in essence just go in and redraw lines kind of or take those not not that it wasn't hard but I guess I'm saying like geographically it kind of made sense when correct, they took that correct. Lines, yeah, lines weren't redrawn at that point, but you know they could easily come across the border and uh, and supply rebels basically um, with you know equipment and supplies to keep you know keep the place uh, unstable. And the reason why you know one reason you know from Putin's perspective why you would you, you would want to keep you know, these provinces um, destabilized or unstable or, 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 or very russified or just war-torn situation is that, you know, this is a time, and this has been a time since, you know, 1991 with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, where there's always been this underlying uh, force to, or underlying, you know, idea to eventually maybe joining the West more and more and to form more and more ties with the West, you know, possibly joining the EU, possibly joining NATO, um, you know, the European Union. And this was actually one of the triggers or that's, that's considered one of the triggers of the 2014 uh, invasion where, where now you have a situation where more and more people are in favor of, 
of, of joining um, the European Union. And this again triggered, you know, Moscow or Putin in particular um, to say, oh, we can't have that because, you know, this is, this is Ukraine on our, on our border. And, you know, we don't want to have another democratic society on our border and basically threatening, you know, Russia's, uh, you know, kind of politics and economy and everything like that. Mm. No, we, they don't want to lose control. So they want to keep Ukraine as a buffer between, um, you know, between itself and the Western world. Um, and this is basically a, a, a also a big underlying theme, um, you know, going forward for everything that Putin's doing and everything that he says he's doing uh, and the reasons why he's doing this. Um, and so in 2014, you know, when, when they came over, um, this was, you know, this was basically, you know, the first, um, you know, the first warning or not a warning, but it was an actual invasion uh, and the start of a war uh, in Ukraine to prevent, prevent um, Ukraine from, you know, formalizing any ties with the European Union. Because one thing, uh, in order for the country to join the European Union, for instance, you need to have um, you know, unanimous agreement by all the different oblasts or all the different provinces within Ukraine. So if you keep a couple provinces destabilized or, you know, rebel rousing and basically under, under you know, some threat or actual war, you're never going to have, you know, an agreement by the entire country to join the EU. So that alone is mission accomplished. And so you won't have, you know, the, the formalized tie of Ukraine with the European Union. Um, and that was one of the big, um, you, know, you, know, you know, the big you know, uh, issues that, uh, you know, kind of seemed to force Putin's hand, or at least from his perspective. And which essentially, um, let's, let's go back to uh, 1960s Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Random, right? But, uh, but basically, this is when, you know, our administration, you know, JF Kennedy, uh, basically told the Soviets, we will not have you interfering with our democracies in the Western Hemisphere, stay out of the Western Hemisphere, no nukes, no missiles, get the hell out, or we're going to mm -hmm. do something, you know, there's going to be a nuclear, you know, a, a yeah. nuclear issue going on here. Um, and this was essentially, you know, um, the Monroe Doctrine that, that, that we, were, we were doing, you know, in the 1960s. Um, in a sense, this is kind of this, a similar, you know, issue of, you know, Putin using his kind of concept of a Monroe Doctrine to make sure that, you know, the West is not invading Russia's sphere of influence and, and keeping this kind of buffer. Uh, in addition to Putin's you know, uh, megalomaniac, you know, kind of maniacal, you know, attitude of always wanting to reassemble the Soviet Union, which he mm. always considered that one of the biggest humiliations um, mm. of, of USSR, of the Soviet Union. Um, he was always, you know, you know upset that uh, Gorbachev didn't kill millions in order to maintain power mm. and maintain the Union together. So this kind of gets you into a little mindset of Putin, how far he's willing to go. I mean, the guy, the guy is a, uh, um, you know, he's basically a, a mid-level KGB thug. I mean, that's the way he's best described. And, and uh, Masha Gesser, 
had a had a book a couple of, uh, uh, probably a decade close to now, um, basically on Putin. And really, the, the the theme throughout the book is he's you know he he's not that brilliant. He's a good strategist. He's a KGB spy, but he's he's been always mid level. But then eventually comes to power in 1999, uh, worked his way through and took over after Yeltsin appointed him as prime minister. And a day later, Yeltsin resigns, and now you have. Putin, you know, the president uh, of, uh, of Russia, um, you know, just you know, like a couple months after the Kosovo war, which he actually had a big strategic uh, part of in, uh, in supporting, you know, the Serbs and, and even trying to flex his muscle by bombing one of the, uh, by the Russians bombing one of the uh, airports in Yugoslavia at the time. Mm. So, it's, it's, this is a, like a you know, complex geopolitical you know, issue, but, but one thing, you know, just to, 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 to give you again, this, this mindset of, of Putin and actually Xi Jinping uh, in, in China. Um, you know, we're in the uh, 21st century, uh, right? but we're really dealing with, you know, when we're dealing with Putin, when you're dealing with Xi Jinping, you're dealing with 19th century or 20th century mentality where they're always thinking about balance of power. Everything that they do is regarding balance of power. Here, you know, that's different than what, you know, what the West is thinking. The West is getting more into, you know, democracy, of course, but also thinking more global, you know, the globalistic approach and globalistic uh, geopolitical um, you know, structures, um, you know, and, and, and I think this is one reason why a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of analysts, a lot of, you know, administrators and all the administrations, why they really can't get ahead of around why the hell these people, you know, between China and Russia, why they're, why they're doing what they're doing. They don't understand, but you really have to think back to, you know, you're only as strong as your might is projected. Mm. Um, and, 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 and yeah. if there isn't anybody to push back, mm-hmm. um, that, that might, they'll just keep spreading, spreading, spreading essentially like a plague. And, and, and this has been Russia's playbook since, uh, oh, the Ivan, the terribles yeah. <laughs> back in, back in the 13, 1500s. There's a, there's, there's also a couple of good books, uh, one by this uh, one gentleman, Lev Dobryansky, who was um, uh, instrumental in creating this charter charter for captive nations back in the 60s. Mm. Um, but he, you know, he wrote an interesting book, and so it's called The Vulnerable Russians. Uh, and essentially, it chronicles you know, kind of the activity, you know, uh, not just military might, but, you know, kind of the, the, the mindset, the propaganda um, uh, of of, of the Russians. And it's constantly, it's like, if you don't push back, they'll just keep coming and they won't stop until <laughs> they reach yeah. their limit, which is some kind of force. Now, you know, this is all becomes tricky as, as you already just raised. It's like, well, now we have people with nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, we don't have Ukraine with nuclear weapons because that's a different thing. But now you have a, somebody that's threatening technical nuclear weapons, thermobaric bombings, you know, cluster bombing, vacuum bombings, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, how far is somebody willing to go? Um, and now it's, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, is it a game of chicken? Is chess being played? 
Um, you know, um, how does the, you know, how, do, how do the Russians, how does Putin look at the West? Does he consider them vulnerable right now uh, and not powerful? I mean, one thing that that is happening is you're getting a lot of consolidation and unification of NATO, EU, and a lot of world nations in the West yeah. because of this. So is this a backfire at the same time? <laughs> in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, I'm kind of like, you know, I mean, to get a little political here, Putin has kind of always been a bad guy, at least in an American general mindset. You know what I mean? And obviously... I would assume Ukrainians feel not maybe everyone, but because there's there's never any complete, you know, uh, you know, unanimous thought on somebody. But I guess what I'm saying is, like, I would assume Ukraine's always felt some kind of way about Russia, at least as you look at as you just go through the history. (laughs) You know, you're not necessarily friendly, which is very interesting in the sense that you have Russians who live there in Ukraine or have like, and, and, and living at peace with people after the Russification, like you said, uh, like that, I'm sure that create has created some internal problems of thought of Western ideas being challenged um, within Ukraine. But in America, we've kind of always had, at least ever since I remember, um, Putin's like a bad guy. And then yet over the last kind of four years, five years, um, that kind of thought changed, or at least um, from some political leaders, it shifted. Let me put it that way. Um, and uh, that, I, w- I wonder how much that plays into this too, in the sense that um, the West hasn't been as maybe uh, vocally strong about our position on Putin or Russia. But then also you say the Western, like the Western kind of, coming into coming into Ukraine, you're talking about thoughts, ideas, um, philosophies on democracy and all that, you know, and it's so hard because I feel like Putin's in a position where it's like, dude, you can't control the internet. I'm getting so much news about Ukraine from Instagram, bro. You can't stop someone with a phone who's going to post this. You can't control this. Like there is no controlling this and your invasion has solidified the world on Ukraine's side, man. Like you, like I didn't know about this nearly as much as I know in the last three weeks. And I mean, I think I, I think I remember it in 2014, but it didn't seem as globally, um, as much of a global touch point as it is right now. Um, and this seems, is this, a, would it be fair to say there's a much larger scale right now than what they did in 2014, correct? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, like nobody, you know, uh, nobody really predicted. Well, you know, when you look at all the analysts, everybody like Ukrainians, we'll talk about that in a second. They didn't, they didn't predict that that Putin was going to come over, come across the border all through the, you know, they were, he's been building up, you know, his military, you know, a hundred thousand and more uh, military, military personnel, uh, along the border, along the eastern border, and then Belarus, and the northern border, you know, of Ukraine, um, and and essentially everybody thought, or the, the 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 general school of thought, I should say, was that all right, he's showing his might at the border. Again, he's flexing because he doesn't want. Now the discussion is about joining NATO, not just joining EU. Now it's like a bigger thing, which means you know, if you join NATO. 
uh, and you get invaded, then that triggers what they call Article 5, which is um, essentially authorizes a military response to protect you know, the, invade, the, the country being invaded. Um, uh, so, 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 but, you know, thought, okay, there's some negotiations here. Um, and, and all right, we'll, we'll stop there. We'll come to the table and somebody will do something and we'll say, okay, NATO, okay, Ukraine isn't going to join NATO. So in a sense, again, Ukraine is being used as a, as a pawn in this to keep this buffer zone. Um, and, you know, uh, and, and the thing is that, uh, when you look at, you know, again, Ukraine as a buffer, you know, the, one of the schools of thought, uh, which isn't, which hasn't been very popular is that, you know, Putin's responses are in, in response to the West's attack on Russia. Okay. Mm. How was that? This is, you know, and, and, and this will, will, this is part of a bigger, uh, you know, a hybrid war that, that Putin is, is using um, in this information slash misinformation slash gaslighting uh, aspect of, you know, justifying what they want to do uh, in order to, you know, for you to respond and get you to do what they want you to do. <laughs> okay. Um, this actually is part, you know, the Soviet theorists from the 50s and 60s uh, established something called the, you know, the Soviet doctrine of reflexive control. Okay, so uh, this essentially is, yeah, accuse somebody of something, <laughs> okay, that is preposterous, all right, and and then and then say, well, I'm just responding to you know to what you're doing uh, because you're doing something bad. It's not me doing something bad. I'm just responding to it, so I'm I'm reacting to this. Uh, but you started it, and this is kind of the idea. What's happened? What's happened with? You know, the reason why, you know, Putin came over the first time as well, you know, in 2014. Um, if you, uh, if you, if, is if this, you remember, is this where he, is this even part of like him saying like, I'm going into Ukraine because we need to denazify Ukraine. Is that like, like yes. that, that's a, that's a great example, right. Of exactly what you're saying. Like, this isn't that's, a problem, but you're make you're pretending it's a problem. And because yeah. you control the propaganda within Russia and the, and the media outlets within Russia, yeah. You can say that, and it's not going to be challenged necessarily by your base. The world might know, but your base is going to struggle to maybe sift through the information. Is that the fair way of kind of saying that? That's that's exactly that's exactly right. This is the same thing that, uh, that yeah. And then they're going to be peacekeepers on top of that. Oh yeah, <laughs> we'll come in as peacekeepers <laughs> to make sure that nobody nobody is you know nobody's acting like a Nazi because the Jewish president of ukraine <laughs> Zelensky. <laughs> okay but 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 yeah this is again the playbook is the same what they used in georgia years before that where they basically invaded georgia under the auspices of saying we need to protect our russian citizens in in the state of georgia the country of georgia because they're being attacked by local Georgians, Ossetians, uh, and stuff, and Chechens, and all this kind of stuff. So we're going to go in there, and and we're going to respond. We're not we're not causing. We're not the aggressors here. We're just defending our people that, that live there. And this is the same thing. We're going to denazify uh, that, and 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 there's a there's a genocide being 
being waged by the Ukrainians in the provinces of Luhansk and Donetsk on the eastern border uh, of, of uh, Ukraine with Russia. So we're going to come in there and you know be the peacekeeper. Um, but this is this is kind of the, the thinking. Um, and yeah. it's exactly the way you said it, it's a, it's a playbook that's that's played over and over again. And just every time it's been getting on the larger scale, they did something in Kazakhstan, they did this in Georgia, and now they're doing this in Ukraine. Um, and, you know, it may go further into the Balkans or whatever, if it keeps going from there. Um, so, so, so you mentioned uh, Zelensky, President Zelensky. Um, dude seems like a pretty amazing leader just from like, I don't know anything about him until the last, like I said, couple of weeks. But like yeah. America's like, we'll get you a ride out. He's like, I don't need a ride. <laughs> He's yeah, like, I just need ammo. I just need ammo, man. Don't give me a ride. I mean, <laughs> you can just see even when like I've listened to a lot of his speeches translated in English and like he speaks very well. I mean, I heard he used to be a comedian or, or and like, but I'm like, yeah. he, he speaks yeah. very well. He seems to be very articulate. He seems to have. A very a very western mindset or at least bringing russia or ukraine into the 21st century not that you know other leaders hadn't done that but it seems like he he is the right leader to bring them into a global um uh like into something like the eu or into something mm -hmm. like nato he seems to have an expansive kind of worldview how has he received in ukraine like even prior to this is he has he been like a 50 50 kind of leader or has he been more of like a landslide leader that a lot of the people are behind or, or maybe explain a little bit of like even I, I would assume this this move by Putin is almost solidified even his I don't know what his standing was prior to this, but I would it would seem like probably a lot of Ukrainians, if they weren't for him, have seen his courage and his willingness to stand up to Putin and like have seen that as like a um, maybe I don't I don't know the politics of the inside, but it seems like he'd be a hard leader not to follow or at least be like. I got to respect this guy. Like I, I, at least from afar, that's how I'm seeing it. How, how are Ukrainians yeah. in, inside Ukraine seeing this? Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, you said it. Yeah. A lot of the, what you said is, is, is true. Uh, but you know, as far as right now, currently he definitely is the man of the moment. Yeah. Right. He, he is the guy uh, and he's showing, you know, the, you know, the resilience of the Ukrainians and, and he's, you know, he's, He's playing it right, um, and he's and he's unifying, you know, Ukraine and the rest of the world, basically, uh, based on everything that he's doing uh, to the extent that he can what what he can do. Um, uh, so he's you know he's in his uh, I think mid forties now. He was born in you know southern part of Ukraine uh, or Russian speaking. Uh, so and then he first went to law school. So he, you know, he, he has a law degree and then I'm not sure exactly how much law he actually practiced, but at some point he decided to get into comedy and, and TV. And interestingly enough that uh, as he was developing his craft, you know, from the, you know, from this actor comedian side, um, he ended up playing the role of the Ukrainian president in a parody, um, you know, of <laughs> comedy, a parody comedy show. Um, and so, and, uh, and became popular that way. So, so, you know, he knows the camera, he yeah. understands media, 
Um, so he he was the voice. Think? He was the voice of Paddington in the in Ukrainian, right? That's what I, I heard. I he, was, he was the voice yeah, of yeah. Paddington. I was like, that's hilarious. I, Little kids are growing up with his voice as the bear that they're watching on Paddington. I'm like, that's wild. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So then he decided, you know, he decided at some point to uh, to go, you know, I guess to go, you know, to get into politics. And this was a time when, you know, you have, you know, you have this, uh, this guy, yeah, we've had a number of, or, Ukraine has had a number of presidents, um, and the the, uh, the one president, um, Viktor Yanukovych, was president in Ukraine in the early two thousands, and um, you know he was very much um, a, a Russophile and more of a Putin puppet, uh, and you know with all the you know with all the trimmings and corruption that goes with that, um, mm. and when he came up for election, he was. Um, uh, he was he was going up against um, this uh, another candidate called called uh, Yushchenko, and he and this occurred in uh, back in like twenty or oh four or so. And what happened was that, um, and, and we'll get to Zelensky, but we'll yeah, no, this to- is this is good because I haven't really understood the politics of the twenty first century in general. So this is helpful. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, so what happened was, was uh, you know, Yanukovych was was uh, uh, you know up for for election against against this guy Yushchenko, who was much more you know democratic, um, and and during the election process, what happened was was the um, it turned out that uh, Viktor Yushchenko was kind of pulling ahead in the polls of this Yanukovych. And it just became so so obvious that Yanukovych was president at that time, um, but beca- because the polling became so strong, Yanukovych basically shut down the media, and the next day declared himself the winner. <laughs> okay, so very very Putin yeah. move, very Putin type yeah. move. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so what would happen? Well, the pe- people get pissed off. Yeah. Right. And what happened was the beginning of the Orange Revolution. So this was just because of what was going on was also worldwide, you know, being looked at under the lens by the rest of the world. Um, you know, there was political pressure, internal, you know, international, um, such that the government, um, you know, in the Rada, you know, the government basically, you know, uh, had to hold a revolt, a revote. And, uh, and, and this time, you know, in this time, uh, Yushchenko was elected. Uh, uh, and so he, um, you know, so he beat out Yanukovych, the Russian puppet, and this was, you know, it was a great thing. He was, you know, moving forward with the pres- presidency, but, you know, it was difficult and still had to deal with a lot of corruption. And after five years, he actually lost to Yanukovych again. Mm. So Yanukovych, you know, Oof. came back into power. It swings back, uh, yeah. And things swing back and it begins to turn Ukraine back into a puppet state of Russia. Um, so it's taken over societal controls, you know, infiltrating police, military, uh, Russian nationals, um, were, were, you know, and nationalism was, was permeating through. Um, and so it was, you know, it, it really put a, you know, you know, put a, put a, uh, you know, put a damper on, you know, the democratic, you know, the democratic state, um, you know, moving forward. 
Um, but you know, eventually, you know, you're going into you're going into the 2013, and I promise you, we'll get back into Zelensky. No, it's fine. Yeah, yeah, no, this is good. This is good. This is good. <laughs> yes, and uh, and so we're we're coming back into you know 2013 and starting to get ready for you know for the next series of elections um, and things and in you know an underlying uh, kind of effort was being made to try to get uh, Ukraine um, in some kind of a plan or stepwise integration over time back into the uh, European Union and maybe even NATO. Okay, now where are they getting this from? Um, well, back in back in 2008, there was a, a NATO Bucharest summit and um, it was about, you know, countries, you know, who's deserving to get into NATO, where are we going, uh, where we are and everything, kind of like a strategic plan and everything. But in there was a really interesting, you know, statement that they ended up putting into, um, you know, as far as it became a pledge. And the, um, you know, the proponent of this statement uh, was uh, the German chancellor at the time, Angela Merkel. Oh, and okay. she actually put into a statement, uh, and this was you know debated back and forth. But she eventually, uh, this is a NATO uh, you know directive or not directive, but uh, you know part of a summit. And and she put in the statement that said eventually, you know, pledging that Georgia and Ukraine you know will become members of NATO, but no no time frames or anything were. We're, we're, we're being, we're, we're articulated or anything, you know, and this, of course, you know, Putin blows a vessel over this and, you know, this is simmering for a while. And, you know, this is kind of like, no, we can't do this. Um, you know, that, uh, you know, so there was this democratic move by the parliament Dorada to try to keep moving in this direction. So there were all these, you know, undertones are going on. And, and this was also while Yanukovych was president. And again, this is the Russian puppet. You know, he didn't like this. So at one point, he just announced that Ukraine would suspend this activity. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> no, we're, we're having done, no more of this talk. You know? and, mm. and instead, that uh, Ukraine will uh, join the uh, Russian Commonwealth of Independent States or the Eurasian Customs Union. Uh, or something like that. So it's basically doing a 180 right away. And, and so, you know, and, and not only that, but at the time when this was all happening, you know, Viktor Yanukovych, the president of Ukraine, flies to Moscow to consult with Putin on this. You know, so you, you can't get more of a uh, puppet tie to, uh, you know, Russia and the Ukrainian president at the time. So, you know, so then what happened was, you know, then Yanukovych, you, you know, he, he gets the, the, the security and everything to attack protesters in KU because, you know, everybody's starting to revolt. And just because of this kind of like, we'll have no more talk of democracy or joining the European Union or NATO, this ended up turning into uh, what's, what's known as the Euromaidan. So this is like the revolution of consciousness. Um, is this and, 2013? And 2013. This is in 20. This is in 2013. Yeah. Okay. So, so 
you know, so it puts in so context, now, it puts in context why Putin would come in in 2014, you know, like the fact that this is all happening the year prior. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So, so, and Putin's looking at this and he's accusing Ukraine of being taken over by extremists, <laughs> you know? Um, so now you have, and then what happened, um, you know, because the uprising, I mean, there were a lot of, there were, you know, um, there's nobody actually died right away. Uh, and, and so that's a 2013 by 2014, um, you know, there was such an, such an eruption and, and, and protests all of protests all over Ukraine that, uh, you know, Yanukovych eventually fled, mm. um, you know, fled and disappeared essentially. Um, but, but, you know, so beginning 20, uh, February, 2014, um, is when the first deaths actually did occur during this Euromaidan. So you kind of remember, uh, this is before the invasion, before the war started essentially um, by Putin, that uh, nobody was, you know, the, the, the uh, Yanukovych and, and that military started, you know, started shooting people. I mean, over a hundred people were killed uh, over a few days. Um, and these martyrs of the revolution, um, you know, from this Euromaidan, uh, are, are called the Nebesna Satnya, which is the celestial hundred. Yeah, mm -hmm. So, so they're known that. So, so again, so now this is at, in 2014 uh, now, and you have all these protests uh, because we're not going to be democratic. Ukraine isn't going to be democratic, um, you know. And you got all this, you know, people are being killed. Uh, the world is watching. And, you know, there's all these other agreements and things like that. But basically, um, Yanukovych ends up, you know, fleeing for Russia. Um, and then, you know, the, the Ukrainian parliament has to elect new leadership that may. And uh, they ended up electing, um, uh, well, Willy Wonka in a chocolate factory owner, the Peter, Peter Poroshenko. Okay, because he was a uh, chocolate manufacturer magnet. <laughs> okay, <laughs> magnet. <laughs> so, you know, things like Willy Wonka and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, but uh, your guys' but, yeah, politics, so he, your guys' politics in Ukraine are about as interesting as ours over here. This is interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a yeah, chocolate factory owner. Yeah, we have yeah yeah chocolate magnates. Uh, you know, we have comedians. <laughs> Yeah. Of course, uh, we could argue we have plenty of comedians in our government. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but, you know, from this, you know, so we, now we're starting to get this, you know, now, and now you see why, you know, you know, Putin is like, he's really kind of getting all upset over this, freaking out, uh, blowing vessels left and right that, you know, you're going to lose, we're going to lose, Russia is going to lose Ukraine as uh, you know, a sphere of influence because they want to go democratic and, and you know, they just ousted essentially their, you know, their leader, which was my right-hand man in Ukraine. Um, so, so he invades the Crimean Peninsula and decides to take that over. Uh, Crimea, Crimean Peninsula was actually given to Ukraine as a territory by Nikita Khrushchev in 1953. Um, you know, as a way to placate, you know, other uprisings and in politics in Ukraine. So uh, Crimea wasn't always part of Ukraine. It's kind of gone back and forth, but it became officially 
a um, you know a territory or state uh, or, or or a possession of Ukraine or part of Ukraine essentially um, just just shortly after the war by Nikita Khrushchev. Well, you know, of course, Putin never liked that one either. Yeah. So, so basically, Putin doesn't like anything that doesn't involve reestablishing, you know, power, solidifying and centralizing power in the old, yeah. you know, as the old Soviet Union. He's losing. But, uh, he's but, losing influence. He's losing power, and yeah. he responds by asserting his power and dominance. Is what it seems like. That it seems to be a reoccurring theme. That like, yeah, yeah. A little bit it's all balance of. Yep. Yeah, balance yeah. of power politics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it's a matter of, you know, who can you control and what can you control? It's not, can we yeah. get along and can we make a deal? Uh, it's, 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 it's mine, you know, it's my ball. I'm taking it or you can't have it or I'm going to blow you up type of, yeah. you know, attitude. So but, how long, uh, how long does the chocolate factory guy stay in power? <laughs> how long does he make it? Uh, for a few years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for a few years until 2019. Okay. Um, yeah, but uh, so so now you have this this war going on, you know, in uh, you know in eastern eastern Ukraine. Essentially, you know, it's 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 a war. Um, you know, you could call it a military operation, as Putin would call it, or or actually, he never admitted. Okay, so that's actually a critical point. Um, you know, even even if you remember in uh, during the you know the initial invasion in 2014 of the Crimean Peninsula. Um, if you remembered some news reports that a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of the invaders or occupiers did not have country insignia on their uniforms. Mm. They essentially were little green men. Mm. Okay. And these were Russians. Yeah. <laughs> and so this gives, you know, this, this eventually allows, you know, uh, you know, this plausible egregious... deniability. Plausible deniability. Yeah. I, I didn't have it's my like so yeah. egregiously implausible. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, have, right? everybody knows what the f is going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, yeah. But, but he's again. You're, he's playing us. Oh, I don't know who's doing this, and and we're not doing anything in uh, in in eastern Ukrainian provinces. Those are local uprisings. I you know I can't help it if they want to do, but we're happy to protect them if necessary. So mm. so again, this is playing that uh, you know that reflex control doctrine um, and all this gaslighting stuff. It's like all right, but. So, so go forward to, uh, to 2015, about a year later uh, or so, um, and there's going to be a ceasefire agreement. Okay, this sounds very interesting. So it's called the Minsk Agreement. So, you know, a bunch of people uh, from, from Russia, Ukraine, Germany, French, um, go up to, to Minsk and Belarus. Um, and trying to seek peace, essentially, in areas of Ukraine that were taken over by these pro-Russian separatists the year before. Okay, so this is, again, that Donbass region and the Luhansk region um, that, are, that are being occupied. And the idea is to get, a, uh, you know, get some kind of a peace agreement or at least a ceasefire. And they were able to agree on a ceasefire all right, and remember, it says Russia is involved in this. Nowhere, nowhere in this agreement 
is there any indication that Russia was an that Russia is even named in the agreement, or that Russia is an aggressor? Uh, but yet, Russia is in there as a clause that can be a mediator <laughs> of, of, of the war. All right. So again, this comes back from these little green men that have no country insignia. And, and, and Russia is not admitting to anything, mm. but they're happy to protect or it will mediate the, uh, you, know, you know, any, any, any problems that occur in that area. So, I mean, you know, wolf and hen house and all these kind of metaphors that, uh, you know, that you yeah. can say it's bizarre that, you know, it's kind of a meaningless, um, you know, agreement in a sense, because there's this, you know, I heard, you know, the other day or previously this, you know, this joke, you know, what do you call, what, what do you call when two nations, you know, send in troops, tanks, armaments, and, uh, you know, and, and military, uh, you know, you know, ordinance, um, you know, against each other, and they call it a ceasefire. This is what, <laughs> this was what the essentially yeah. the ceasefire mounted out to be and so and that's happening now there's that's happening right now where they're agreeing to these ceasefires and then all of a sudden there's not a ceasefire and like and and you're seeing people that are trying to evacuate get gunned down in the middle of what was supposed to be a ceasefire i mean so this is not the same playbooks being played right now even yeah exactly and so and so what started in 2014 has never really finished Okay. Okay. So you have it just de-escalated. Have, you know, it just de-escalated a little bit. It, it just kind of, of well, yeah, yeah. It just stayed kind of local. Okay. Uh, if you stay to those eastern provinces, eastern oblasts of Luhansk and Donetsk, um, you know, kind of already, you know, Crimea was taken over. All right. That's the end of that. Um, and but there's constantly this, you know, Russia supplying these, you know, these pro-Russian, you know, separatists, um, just to keep, keep it going. And um, we're talking, you know, 14,000 people died um, in, in that, you know, in the initial part of that war. I mean, this mm. is not, you know, a, just a, a skirmish. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and so, but it's, yeah, it's just, as you say, as you observed, you know, it's that same kind of playbook. We're always responding to something. We're never the aggressor. We have all this kind of, you know, deniability of ever being involved in everything. And it's just, and, you know, the West is being very diplomatic all the time. Nobody really calls them out and nobody really puts up a strong resistance from the West. You know, sanctions are more and more. They put some sanctions before, but, uh, you know, which is a whole, you know, whole other thing. But what happened is in 2019, you have this, a comedian that wants to become president. (laughs) And so, he ends up, you know, Poroshenko is out, you know, there's always this under, underveiling, you know, um, you know, issues of corruption, what can be done. And there's all these, you know, parties and, and a lot of, you know, Russian or pro-Russian subversion in the government and so on. And, and it's, you know, just really difficult to weed all this out. And Poroshenko, the chocolate factory guy, you know, was trying to do that. Um, you know, he's probably not without sin either, um, you know, and all this um, to the extent that, you know, that he tried, he had a democratic approach um, and was pushing that. Uh, but still, you know, he kind of lost favor with the populace. And now you have, um, 
you know, um, Zelensky that, uh, that throws his hat in the ring. His party was named the same name that the party in his comedy show was. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so it's, yeah, it's, you know, you, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> so I would assume and, uh, there's a part of it that's like, Hey, we could throw a Molotov cocktail into this because this guy is a wild card. We don't know what we're going to get in some ways, right? Like, but we're not, we're probably not going to get like a Putin figurehead out of it. Is that kind of what was being thought? Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. So he, his, you know, his, his line, uh, you know, he ran on the line of, you know, anti-corruption. Uh, and he's been pretty good with that, uh, you know, to kind of consistent, um, you know, so he did get elected um, with, uh I think it was 73% of the wow. very, wow. quite a high amount. Okay. Um, but, but, you know, and, and over time, so he started out good, but then of course you get dips and, you know, in, in the popularity and because you, you just can't change, you know, the country's path or, you know, internal politics don't change on a dime just because it's also, it's also been a hard season. I would assume get becoming a president of a country in 2019, the next year, you, yeah. early on in the next year, you've got COVID and exactly. you've got you've got yeah. every that changes everything. Economics, yeah. uh, everything just gets challenged yeah. there. Yeah. So I, I would assume it, has, it hasn't been uh, the easiest of problems that he's had to solve on top of the problems that were already pressing when he stepped in. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and, you know, so, you know, he had his critics, you know, saying that for one, you know, it's like. You know, you can't do anything. Well, that's not surprising because you have absolutely no experience in politics. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, point taken. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, but also, you know, certain things couldn't be done. So he'd start falling out of favor with some people and, and it kind of, you know, wax and wane. And like you said, you have COVID, um, you know, in the mix of things and, and, and you have, you know, struggling, you know, economy, struggling world uh, and everything. And but slowly you start getting into, you know, so so, you know, he his favorability rating went was down at, I think, 25 percent at one time. Oh, wow. Uh, just just before just before this invasion broke out. So, wow. so it, it hasn't been all, you know, all, all glory and, you know, and, you know, five star ratings and everything. Um, and, and part of that was, he, you know, he's, you know, critics also say he's. You know, he's, he's pretty thin skinned with the media. So he'd kind of lash out at the media. We've seen people do that before. Uh, but he's also, you know, had some, you know, has shut down some of them here and there. So sometimes, you know, he's saying you're starting to get a little tyrannical. Um, so it hasn't been as smooth as, you know, what you, what you see now. Um, yeah. yeah. That's so, interesting. That's, uh, I mean, that's interesting to hear the origin of like the president's to now in the 21st century because um, that's got to be so challenging to step in as a president. I just think, well, first of all, to step in as a president period of any institution or country, like that's super challenging. But then like in this particular case, his detractors internally in Ukraine uh, have Russian background or are pro-Russia, but they're living in Ukraine and so he has this like he has this like population that he has to kind of appease. Right. Or at least keep satisfied. Um, right. So like the more Western he goes, while that might seem like a very popular thing to me as a Westerner, obviously, um, 
there's probably a good amount of his own country that's struggling with that concept or struggling with that direction. And um, in the, in the era of misinformation and, you know, just right. slander, he's got to work through his own ways of creating propaganda slash talking points that can keep everybody on the same page, which is gotta be so hard when you have a country with that much of a history of going just kind of pen pendulum back and forth. And so right. in a lot of, yeah. in a lot of ways, Putin's kind of solidified him as would you say he's Putin solidified him in a lot of ways as a leader of more honor and dignity and integrity than he previously had even before this? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Shocking. Indeed. Shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Cause even, you know, cause you're, you're talking about, again, <coughs> excuse me. We talk about the East West divide uh, of Ukraine um, and, you know, historical polling, you know, over the past, you know, since 2014, let's say, um, it's always it's it's like easy to see because you can see the east would go one way and the west would go the other way, western part of Ukraine versus eastern part of Ukraine. Um, uh, but now, you know, if you do well, now if you're invading Ukraine, you're invading all of Ukraine. Uh, and now what you've done is pretty much unify, um, you know, because you have I mean, first of all, why the hell are you invading? What's the purpose? What's your end game? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. What do you think Putin's end game is? Because I guess yeah. stabilizing the country is the end game. You could argue if he just left right now, he created a lot of instability, he created a ton of refugees. Are they going to come back? Um, and then also just the amount of infrastructure that's been damaged just during this war already. But that doesn't seem to be his end game is just destabilization. It seems to be destabilization and uh, a certain percentage of control amid the destabilization, which you've referenced multiple times, what do you think that level of control or power or like, what do you think he's thinking as he's reassembling? Uh, I mean, maybe you don't know, but I guess um, theories about that, uh, about what he's yeah, trying yeah, to I'm do. Not, yeah. I'm bad at predicting because I predicted he wouldn't cross the border either, but, uh, but, you know, be that as it may. Um, yeah. Because I mean, you can invade, the country you have ukrainian you know resistance that is you know, amazing right now i mean considering yeah. you have a military might like russia that should be able to come in and just annihilate you listen uh, ukraine ain't nothing to mess with like that's what we found out right now right i mean i saw a dude with a mine in his hand while smoking a cigarette just walking <laughs> it like it was no big deal i'm like Look, they're not leaving. Yeah. Like they're not. They're they're not going. Like this is not normal. <laughs> I guess I'm yeah. like. <laughs> I, know. I know. Well, the best one. The, yeah, the best. The best form of resistance, and you know, Ukrainians or people of Ukrainian descent know this very well, is when the grandmother took out a drone with a pickle jar. That's that's maybe that's what I was. Yeah, yeah. The drone <laughs> with a pickle jar. Yeah, I was like, are you kidding me? We got grandmas out here. Like this is not. This y'all y'all did not know what you were getting into that. I mean, I, I, there's a certain level of humor to it in the sense of like, clearly Russia did not even know what they were going to experience uh, from like the, the intelligence or the planning was really poor. At the same time, you don't want to laugh about it because you're also recognizing that like thousands of people are suffering and dying because right. they are so greatly overwhelmed um, right. from just a technology weaponry situation. So it's like, 
the end game of what Putin's trying to do, whatever that is, in, in a lot of ways, time's going to win out for him because he he does have the military ability to get there eventually. And that's right. where I'm that's where I wonder what the U.S. should be doing differently. But I guess those two questions of like, what do you think Putin's end game is? And then what do you think the U.S. or, you know, NATO should be doing more of or, you know, uh, allies should be doing more of? Yeah, I think, yeah, Putin's endgame is really hard uh, because like, like, like we're discussing, you have the military might to just wipe out the entire country, 44 million people. You can, you know, you can do whatever you want. You can start launching cruise missiles, you know, everywhere and you can do shock and awe type of stuff. You know, the initial wave, I mean, first of all, you know, border, you know, he, he, he came in from the north, from the east and from the south. Uh, and when you look at the way the military was structured on those borders, um, they weren't very well organized from a military perspective. Uh, it was kind of a mix and match. Logistics were, were terrible, but, you know, the thinking here, the common thinking was that, you know, Putin underestimated the Ukrainians, first of all, you think that they would come in, you know, the, the first wave would come in and, they would just lay down their roll over and he can instill install his puppet government and move in. You know, because he didn't go after the uh, you know the airports right away. You think you'd go after the airports, uh, but it seemed like he was going to preserve the airports and just try to take them over because then you could get air supremacy. Um, that didn't seem to work out either. It just seems as though you know. Either he got bad military advice, which I can't believe the generals yeah. would would do that, or he just you know decide this is what I'm going to do and and that's it. Uh, his arrogance, his, his arrogance might have got the best of him of thinking we can handle this, yeah. no problem, Nick. Yeah, yeah, we've seen that since the time of Caesar. <laughs> yeah, know, exactly. In, yep, in the wars, you know, the hubris and all that, but. Uh, yeah, but so so then he come in with the second wave, and uh, you know he starts surrounding the cities and trying to come in, and you know do you annihilate them? I mean, you're bombing civilian condos, hospitals, schools. Kids are being you know um, you know killed. Uh, people all over are being terrorized, obviously. Um, but you know, just don't understand um, you know the reason because again, you could you could come in invade and win a war, but you're not going to keep that because you're going to get insurgency. Okay. Um, that's going to continue. Um, you're going to end up in this Afghanistan scenario, Russian Afghanistan in the eighties. Um, yeah. It's just something that's going to keep gnawing on you. And so are you willing to annihilate millions of people and, and, and expect nobody to do anything? So now say, what is the response by others? You know, is, is Putin just going to stop at Ukraine or is he going to continue into Moldova, Romania, Poland, the Bal Baltic states? Um, you know, where do you want to go first? Now, these are NATO countries. Uh, so this is a whole, you know, that this is a whole different ballgame. So if he, makes, if he makes that jump, that's got to be World War Three. Right. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not trying to, yeah. like, call that. I mean, a lot of people are saying that and. I, I don't I wouldn't say we're there yet, but I guess yeah. what I'm saying is like it, I feel like if he steps into that, we're gonna yeah, yeah. It, it, that shit, that's yeah, all hell is gonna break loose because I mean you know, different, you know, if you read different analysts from you know, you could say the beginning of World War Three may have started in 2014, 
you know, and it's continuing now. And it's now, now we just reached another inflection point. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and is there going to be another inflection point? Uh, yeah, because it's know, interesting. Cause- it's interesting to look back at World War II and realize that you had like this constant call for America to get involved. And you saw us kind of waiting, waiting, waiting. We weren't really calling it World War II at that time. We weren't right, really yeah. seeing it as this global touch point, right? Of everybody interconnected in this conflict that was happening right. that was at the time relatively regional, right? And so, but it became that really fast. And I think right. you're, you, we're kind of, we're, I think we're seeing a spark and potential gasoline that, that, that could make that, that same kind of yeah. like quick switch. And hopefully yeah. we've learned not to stay out of it for so long because it seemed you could argue like part of what prolonged World War II and at least Hitler's like um, influence and power was the lack of stopping it before more power was granted, I guess, or, or, or attained. I mean, I'm not right. a World War II historian. I'm sure someone could tell me that's not yeah. the reason. But I guess what I'm saying is like it did seem like there was a. Uh, Let's wait. Let's try not to escalate things by responding. Let's not, you know, let's not. And also, let's not send our own people to go fight a war that's not our own. We, right. we as we as Americans have a good job. Of, we, we do a good job of getting into conflicts that are really, in a lot of times, none of our business or aren't necessarily uh, have our best interest. But this seems like one that like just from the surface is like, yeah, what do you think America should yeah, be doing beyond sanctions? Should we should we should we support something like a no fly zone? Well, that this is this. Yeah, this is like the tinderbox scenario here, because, yeah. you know, uh, because all you need is for one Yahoo or some inadvertent interaction. I mean, they could they could be flying by next to each other or something in the air and, it, you know, accidentally hit each other or yeah. something. You could have somebody fire on somebody and then that just goes from there. You and could so even this have this. Everybody... You, you could even have Putin like create a false flag of well, something that didn't even happen that that that, that he yeah. blames on america that because he wants to yeah. prove that what they're like that's the problem when we get involved the propaganda of it also can be used against us would right, be the way right. like the same, the same way he was like we need to denazify we yeah. need to stop the ukrainian genocide of russians in those eastern provinces um but yeah yeah and you know it's like right now you know, the fog of war news, right? You don't know what's real a lot of times. You know, we see the, you know, the ghosts of Kyiv, uh, the this, the that, you know, you know, and, you know, is this true or not? Or it's interesting. Yeah, it's great for morale. It's this, but, you know, Russian propaganda is the opposite. So, you know, we see a lot of terrible things, you know, from that side, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, but uh, yeah, no fly zone. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm very, very hesitant about a no-fly zone just because it seems like it would be such a quick trigger um, for something to happen. Um, you know, what what U.S. You know, and the West is doing now, and I mean, we're talking Germany now has turned around. Um, you know, we have Portugal helping. You know, and you have a lot of a lot of countries. Italy is on board, and and of course Poland and so on. Poland wants to supply some MiGs. Um, for for the Ukrainians um, and you know a lot of the you know armamentarium military ordinance and everything well true realistically a lot of this is all U.S. one way or the other whether well, what it's I heard from 
what I heard was Poland's going to supply some things and including air aircrafts. And then, and then we are going to backfill Poland's aircrafts. In essence, we're not going to supply Ukraine, the aircrafts, Poland supplies Ukraine, the aircraft. So we're not, and then we'll backfill. And it's like, okay, like whatever. Yeah. I mean, I guess yeah, that exactly. works. Yeah. <laughs> Poland is brand new stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Poland's like upgrade. Okay. Yeah. I, I yeah. think it's, I think it's interesting. The kind of like chess of it all of like sanctions, financial, all of that. And, and the impacts that's having. And then like what the, you know, cause I don't know that we have any way of escalating beyond potentially being in a tinderbox situation from where we are right now. Like, I, I just, I don't know what support we can give beyond these creative ways of providing weaponry. Um, that doesn't yeah. potentially create this tinderbox. And, and if, and if yeah. he keeps going past Ukraine, it's like he he's stepped right into the tinderbox at that point. Like yeah. there's just, there's no way to avoid it. I don't think it's, it's just, it's very interesting times to see all this happening. And it must be like, shocking to you or maybe not shocking but like this this is your you know motherland like this is your your home and 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 we haven't really personalized this too much except at the start with your parents but like to personalize it you have probably friends and family there currently right are you in contact with friends and family that are in ukraine right now yeah 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 i have some family that that's actually they're, they're close to the polish border uh near lviv so they actually headed to poland to visit friends even before the official, you know, before all, all, all hell broke loose mm-hmm. um, the other week. So, so we found that um, I'm in constant contact with all my, you know, Ukrainian friends. Uh, I was just in Rochester um, over the weekend for a large donation uh, drive of supplies uh, that's going to a lot of the refugee camps um, and going to, to Ukraine. Same thing is going on here in Buffalo. Uh, New York, and I was Rochester, New York, since you're in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, and everybody has, everybody has the stories of, uh, well, first of all, most of Ukraine did not think um, that there was going to be an invasion. It's like one of my friend's cousins, uh, just a week before last, they they headed out to Paris for like a belated honeymoon. Mm. thinking yeah, everything's fine we'll just come back it's all good nothing's going to happen well, surprise mm. uh, yeah, but there are many many people that that are going to the uh to the polish border or the romanian border now and dropping off their kids um oh. yeah, so so the moms and the girls uh and boys you know are being dropped off there the men are staying behind to fight because there is a dictate by Zelensky that Anybody from like, you know, 16 to 80 or 18 to 80, you know, should stay back and, uh, and, and help the cause uh, and things. And so we have, you know, story after story after story of, of you know, people's, you know, cousins, families, kids, um, you know, in, in the refugee camps now. Um, or, you know, some of them are able to come, you know, they're already being put on planes either from Poland or moving on to Germany and coming to the U.S. Uh, but then a lot of them that are coming here already since, since then say, we don't want, you know, I mean, U.S. is nice, but this is our home. We don't, we don't, we shouldn't be forced to leave our homes, our homeland, our, the rest of our family. And, you know, I mean, this is like, talk, talk about disruption of your life. This is not, 
you know, oh, it's time to immigrate and move on and, you know, go West young man type of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, approach. This is kind of like, get out or you may die. Very traumatic. Um, very traumatic. Yeah, this isn't, yeah. this isn't, yeah, no plan. No. Yeah. Wow. Um, so we've talked a lot about a lot of things. What's something that someone listening can actually do? Because one of the things that's very difficult when we look at the world is, and I feel this all the time. I feel so powerless. I just want to curse. There's really like, it's just like, there's nothing I feel like I can do. Um, and, and even in this situation, it's so frustrating. Cause like you said, it's like, I can be like, we just need to enforce a fly, zone, like a no fly zone. And it's like, well, that might not even help. Like, it, and so it's like, even like, you don't even know what to support sometimes um, in the sense yeah. of like what solutions even exist. What's something that someone listening can actually do to help uh, maybe even some organizations you're aware of or ways that they can donate or just um, anything you think that obviously most people listening to this American, but anywhere, uh, how they can help. Yeah. I'll start, I'll start from the political side. What people can do is, you know, you know, contact your representatives, your Congress, you know, people, your senators, um, you know, write them, contact them saying you're, you know, you want them to support Ukraine in any way that you feel they should, um, you know, from, you know, humanitarian aid, you know, on a national level to, uh, you know, to military aid as far as <laughs> supplies. Um, you know, obviously, we're not talking boots in the ground for the most part. Uh, that's pretty much off the table. Um, and, uh, and, and so there's that part, but also, you know, not only that, but, you know, you have people in the, you know, in Europe or in, you know, the United States, I mean, we're talking about, you know, what sanctions can be done, you know, again, from the political side, you know, we're talking about Nord Stream, we're talking about, you know, SWIFT, you know, banking and all that. Um, you know, we haven't talked about China, uh, you know, state, you know, that's a whole you know separate issue. Um, but, but you know, you know, the, the thing is, is that, you know, sanctions at some point will work. Um, you know, should should we get off of gas uh, dependency? You know, and this is, um, you know, last week. You know, I was very, uh, you know, pleased and surprised to hear the secretary of the uh, the, the president of the EU Council um, lay out a plan, a full plan of the EU to get off of Russian gas and mm-hmm. oil. Um, and it was, a, it was a surprise to, to hear that. I mean, everybody talks about it. This is what we should do. This is how we should do that. What's going to be the effect, you know, and, and she actually, she's, I believe, a Dutch, um, you know, a, a Dutch woman. That's the president of the council and said, look, you know, we can get through the next couple months through the winter. Um, and then we got to get off of this gas. You know, Germany has to, Italy has to. Um, and if it means, you know, we're trying to get other sources, you know, are you going to go to OPEC? Are you going to go to Iran? <laughs> you know, these are, you know, these are also questions, you know, where else do you get it? Um, you know, here in the States, we have the, 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 the constant controversy and arguments over let's open up, you know, drilling, you know, drill, baby, drill, all that Keystone XL pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, this won't happen overnight, but we have to do something. We do have oil reserves as well. Um, there's a lot of things we can try to do. We could keep doing it. Nothing's going to happen overnight, uh, essentially, but, uh, 
so there's, you know, there are issues on a political side that you could press. So uh, broadly, broadly as- staying, staying aware politically of what, how those things are affecting this conflict is, is what right, I'm saying. Right. Yeah. 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 And everybody is experiencing it personally. I mean, yeah. go look at the, go fill up your car. Yeah. Uh, you know, and we could talk about, you know, I mean, it wasn't just, you know, it, it's been going on for, for, for a year or two now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it just didn't happen in the last couple of weeks that, uh, that this conflict or this war, you know, triggered everything. So there's yeah. policies in place or you don't think they're in place. So there's, you know, there's, there's a political discussion that, you know, it could always get into. Um, but but on, a, on a personal level, there are organizations, um, you know, you can do the Red Cross, you can do for all the, you know, the international um, aid organizations, you know, for humanitarian aid. Um, a lot of the large cities in, in uh, you know, Philadelphia, New York, Buffalo, New York, Rochester, New York, Chicago, uh, everybody has like a Ukrainian community and nearly all of those also have um, all of those have at least one, if not more than one, um, charitable organization that's set up for donations, uh, either monetary or, or supplies. And okay. many of the monetary donations, many of the charities are primarily, or many of them right now, have a history since 2014 that they've been around because okay. of the initial invasion. Uh, of sending medical supplies um, and any kind of humanitarian aid, especially now that I mentioned before, you know, the the diapers, the sanitary feminine hygiene products and so on and so forth, all those. And I know, you know, over the weekend, you know, we put together one one shipping container that's uh, one has gone off, another one should be gone off in the next day or so. So there are Mm -hmm. many organizations that you could go in, you know, type in humanitarian or Ukraine aid, You'll probably yeah. come up with a bunch of organizations and, or you okay. may know it, somebody that can direct you to them. But these are all, you know, also you want to make sure that they're verifiable. That's what I was going to ask. I was going to ask. Maybe maybe you can yeah. maybe you can email me some links of some uh, some some things you would recommend and I'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. So if you're listening yeah, to yeah. this, I, check the show notes. I'll have some links to some verifiable like actually will get to the right people yeah. and help the right people. I know you know, every nonprofit has to have a lot of administrative costs and things like that. But I know that some, you know, a very small percentage of what you give actually goes to help and it's going to a lot of other things. And so you might know of some things that are very, um, you know, legitimate and aware of what the needs are on the ground to maybe a little more connected to, you know, Ukrainian heritage identity and things like that to where they kind of understand the conflict better, see, you know, where yeah, all, of these, you know, all of these organizations are mainly, you know, 501c3, not for profit, tax exempt uh, yeah. things, and, and the monies and everything and is, you know, uh, everything's above board. But like I yeah. said, you're confident that either money directly goes, you know, toward buying supplies or, uh, you know, uh, or, or supporting, you know, shipping and everything like that to get it there as fast as possible. So yeah, I'm happy to send you, you know, a number of, a, a number of those. Um, yeah. George, this has been really awesome. We've talked almost two hours and I'm incredibly thankful. I'm incredibly thankful for your time. Is there anything you want to say before signing off? Like any final thoughts you want to leave with, with people who are listening or watching? Sure, I'll say some 
from from what I said, I'm a scientist. Also, I'll, I'll I'll give you a quick quick little story on uh, going back to uh, you know who inhabited the lands of Ukraine back you know 50,000 years ago and stuff. And so there are a lot of you know um, you know people, Tripillion people, and and uh, you know civilizations that were there. But uh, you know a few years back, 2015, there was a paper in a proceedings of the National Academy of Science. Sciences that did a really good uh, genetic study of, of remains of people from you know, like 30,000 uh, years ago. And basically they were able to trace the Irish heritage back to originating or coming through Ukraine. So we Ukrainians and Irish have this kind of genetic mix in there because the settlements there in Southern Ukraine were very similar. And that may explain why we like potatoes you know, we like to sing and dance and maybe imbibe a little <laughs> occasionally. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but that's, yeah, that's just, uh, but, but that's actually a very, you know, bona fide study. Uh, they're looking at, uh, you know, genetic migrations because a lot of that comes from, you know, from Persia and, uh, you know, the, the Iranian, you know, subcontinent uh, and so on. So a lot of people come from there. But uh, but really, you know, the big thing is to maintain awareness, help where you can, um, again, through either, you know, personal donations or, or supporting any kind of relief uh, or governmental things. And, you know, of course, you want to pray for the people in Ukraine because there's a lot of people that are, you know, suffering, dying, um, and will still, you know, suffer and, and pass uh, because of some crazy man that uh, nobody understands really why um, what's happening is actually happening. Mm. George, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being on Beyond Boundaries. I think this was uh, a really, I learned a ton today and I think the listeners learned a bunch. So thank you so much for being on. I, I'm really oh, praying. Yeah, go ahead. We also, we also have this trident um, oh yeah. This a, Tell me about that. Yeah. It's a quick, yeah. Cause I put it on, I was, that was a Jersey I was wearing to the Sabres game yesterday, yesterday. <laughs> That's awesome. But, uh, but yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a Ukrainian uh, hockey Jersey, but, uh, yeah. but the trident is something you see in a lot of places. It's basically the, the coat of arms or the symbol of Ukraine. Um, and, and, and it is in a, in a sense of a, in a form of a trident, um, and it's, uh, yeah, you know, it's a little more animated and, and stylized, but it actually has a history back to the, the late 900s by, um, uh, you know, by one of the first, um, uh, by, by actually one of the first princes that came from, you know, the Norsemen and from, uh, from the, 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 the Scandinavian countries and, and ended up occupying and what became Cave and Rus. Um, and he actually brought you know, um, Volodymyr Veliki, uh, Volodymyr the Great, um, actually ended up you know, bringing Christianity to the Ukraine in 988, but he also developed that symbol of Ukraine. And it actually has uh, four letters in it, Ukrainian letters in it. It's, mm. it's, a, it's a V O L A, V, but in Ukrainian it's a B. So, it's, so it spells out Voya which in Ukrainian means freedom. Oh, wow. So that is actually spelled out in that, in that stylized trident. And That's so really this cool. is, 
this is what the Ukrainians have been struggling and striving for since for millennia. Yeah. And it's constantly somebody's trying to take over somebody, but that symbol is, you know, you'll, you'll tend to see that. And uh, so that's a symbol of freedom for us. Mm. Well, my prayer and hope is that freedom can be had and that um, maybe even each of us can have a part in that, whether that's again, supporting certain ideas and politics and pressures that need to be placed or uh, providing relief and, and help as I'm sure this is going to be a rebuild project, no matter what, like there's going to be a lot of need for aid and support. And um, I'm just super thankful that uh, you came on and took some time uh, out of your busy schedule to share with us about um, the history and, you know, some of the personal elements of this and, and how it connects to, so much of what, um, you know, maybe we're somewhat aware of, but not aware of how it connected to Ukraine. And I think so, so much of the problems in our world could be solved by having a better understanding of how we got into the problem and the history of it so that we can see solutions that didn't work and solutions maybe that might work in the future. And so thank you for providing a history lesson for all of us. You started by saying you're not a historian and then you were just dropping knowledge bombs for two hours. Like, so you're clearly, you clearly know your history, but, uh, but thanks for Thanks for being on. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this, Justin. You just finished another episode of Beyond Boundaries. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please rate, review, and share the podcast. Consider donating to my Patreon and Venmo. It helps cover the cost of this podcast. But more importantly for today, visit the links in the description. Uh, whether you find that at my website or just whatever podcast um, tool you're using, app you're using, uh, go look at the show notes. There are links, and I would love for you to get connected to some of the organizations that are supporting um, people on the ground in Ukraine that are helping either um, in, in in ways that they know that help is needed. And so maybe consider monetary donations. Maybe it's something local that you can actually go and volunteer for. Maybe it's just um, a word of encouragement that you can pass along to the work they're doing. I don't know the position you're in and the help that you can provide, but I'm confident you can do something. So please don't just listen and fill your head with knowledge, but at the same time, consider the skills and tools and resources that you have and how you can help um, this war that's happening that is affecting all of us. And so hopefully there's a way you can get plugged in, a way that you can help um, resource somebody um, to just aid this because uh, we need to be the type of people who don't just see suffering, but instead when we see it, we desire um, to bring remedy and help and um, care to those that are going through suffering. So hopefully you can click on some of those links, connect to something that maybe connects to you. May you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas, and championing belonging.